Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of Unseen Law. Thank you so much to everyone that has already listened to our first episode. The last time I checked it had over 90 listens on Spotify alone, um, but it's also now on iTunes and Burst Radio, which is quite exciting. So please do leave a review over on Apple Podcasts if you're enjoying listening so far. I had some really great feedback from the first episode. You know, always feel free to message me on Instagram or Twitter at Unseen Law if you have any questions about any of the topics that I've raised on the podcast. And also... On Instagram, I do a bit on my story sort of highlighting any of the resources I'll have talked about during the podcast so you can see some more easy links to things like books that I reference. On today's episode, we'll kick off with a short introduction to wealth and income inequality and why wealth inequality is a more more important problem than income inequality. And then after this, we have a discussion with James Fishwick from the 93% Club about the state private school divide and just a really interesting conversation about access to higher education and education in general. On to the podcast. The first topic today is the wealth and income inequality divide that currently is experienced in the UK, but also across the whole world, really. I started researching this um, when it was set as sort of a topic of interest for my Rich Law, Poor Law unit. Um, So thank you to Katie Bales, who is a really, really inspiring and engaging lecturer at Bristol. The key text that I was looking at for this was Capital in the 21st Century, by Thomas Piketty, a French economist, which was published in 2014. I will say um, I haven't read all of this book myself, as it is a bit of a tome, and I was quite shocked when I checked out of the library because it's absolutely massive, and I sort of was hoping that it would be a more accessible introduction. But I've read a few chapters and sort of gathered the general argument that he puts forward. And this argument is regarding wealth and income inequality. So wealth is your marketable assets, your house, your land, your stocks. And income is the money that you receive regularly from your job or your investments. So growth in wealth inequality has grown even more than income inequality over the past century. And this is really concerning because wealth inequality has a far bigger impact on people's lives than income inequality. This is because wealth is less ephemeral than income, so your income can change a lot more, whereas wealth is a lot more static. Wealth insulates its holders from personal economic crises, such as sickness or unemployment, and wealth also creates more opportunities, like sending your children to private school, which links in nicely to our debate in the, not debate, our discussion in the second half of the podcast. Even if you have a really high income, if you don't have a strong wealth resource, 
then you will be a lot more vulnerable to changes in your personal, economic and employment circumstances. If you have a high income job but you lose it and you don't you haven't necessarily built up a resource of savings perhaps because you've been paying back student loan debts or a mortgage then you will naturally be a lot more vulnerable to unemployment say than somebody who may have a lower income job but has a large resource of personal wealth some forms of wealth can also be a form of income, for example, if you have a property that you rent out or if you have shares. And so this just continues to perpetuate the inequality in the wealth divide. If you have more wealth, then you or your children are more free to reinvest this and to generate more wealth, unlike people who don't have the means to do so in the first place. Furthermore, wealth confers social prestige and political power, for example, the ability to support political campaigns. And also wealth can be handed down over generations, unlike income. If you have a high paying job, maybe in some forms of nepotism, you can pass this down to your children, but you shouldn't really be able to. Whereas wealth, if you write, a strong will, you know, you can just pass it down to your children. Sandra Black, in her book, Poor Little Rich Kids, shows that there's a strong correlation between the wealth that people possess and the wealth that was possessed by their families. So the main reason she puts forward in her argument, and I think she does so very successfully, that the main reason that people are wealthy is due to the intergenerational transmission of wealth which is interesting um, to consider when we think about how, say in the previous episode, we looked at this idea of the underclass and how certain members of society, people on lower incomes from low income backgrounds, will be seen as lazy or, you know, they just don't work hard enough to earn more money. But actually, regardless of how hard you work, even if you've got quite a high income, it will take you a lot longer to build up the same wealth as somebody whose parents and whose grandparents before them and whose great-grandparents before them accumulated a large amount of wealth. And particularly topical here um, are issues such as slavery, as that was one way that a large amount of wealth was accumulated by certain people in the past. And I think that this racial aspect of wealth inequality and of law in general is something that I'm really looking forward to discussing on a future episode. So I won't go into that too much now, but I think it's really good to keep in the back of your mind when we have these discussions about wealth and income inequality, that race and the impact of slavery has had a huge influence on wealth accumulation for white people in history. So Sandra Black makes the very convincing argument that wealth begets wealth. And key part of this is that parents who are wealthier, their children then get more opportunities due to their parents' money. They're more likely to have private music lessons or horse riding or go to private school. And this is clear in our discussion later about private schools 
and state schools that private school students are more likely to go to top universities and just universities in general than state school students, which then creates better job opportunities because they have a degree. And so wealth inequality in this sense contributes to income inequality as well. This leads me on to the second half of this episode, which is a discussion with James Fishwick from the 93% Club at Bristol University. James Fishwick is a second year history student from Huddersfield in West Yorkshire. James is currently the chair of the Student Union's Widening Participation Network and the secretary of the 93% Club at the University of Bristol. Before we begin, um, he just wanted to make it clear that his views are personal views and do not necessarily represent the whole of the 93% Club. I would also like to apologise for the slightly biased nature of this discussion. I realise I don't have anybody in support of private schools speaking. However, being in support of private schools doesn't really fit with my views and this is my podcast, so I can kind of choose to have who I want on. (laughs) So sorry about that if you think that it comes across as a bit biased or one-sided, but hopefully you'll still find it enjoyable all the same. Okay, um, so just to kick it off, could you put in your own words what the mission of the 93% Club is and what it means to you? So the aim of the 93% Club is to improve the experience of state school students at universities that are disproportionately uh, private school or have disproportionate private school populations to what the national average is. and it's to, it improves the experience through upskilling our members. So that's providing workshops and career sessions, uh, networking events, um, and of course, creating a community through, um, through some really fun socials. <laughs> to me, um, the 93% Club was just uh, somewhere to go. Um, and actually I like, talked to people that had a similar shared background, knew what it was like for a chair to be thrown in the middle of a science lesson. Um, you know, it just some, just someone that you could actually laugh about those things with rather than have someone looked at you shocked. It was quite, quite, quite an, a weird thing coming to Bristol and no one, well not no one, but a lot of people hadn't had those experiences and you just think, okay, where am I? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think I can really relate to that. I found it so shocking. I don't know what halls you were in, but I was in Baydock and it was very private school centred and not even just private schools, but it was a few specific schools. And I had no idea that it would be quite so cliquey or, you know, have such a strong private school identity, even at university. Yeah, I remember... um... I saw it in a film once, someone get asked like, oh, what school did you go to? And it was like a more of an Oxbridge type thing. But someone asked me that in Freshers Week and I was just sat there like, just like my local comprehensive, like <laughs> you won't have heard of it. <laughs> Literally, it's like, what do you say to that question? Because if I name like my random comprehensive school from Bath, people would be like, oh, like, okay. Exactly. Like, like, yeah. Like, what do they expect really? <laughs> Literally. And so based on your experience, obviously, as someone who went to a state school, what do you think in general about 
the whole existence of private schools you know do you think there is any benefit to having a two-tier education system um no like uh so in, in plain simple terms in my own opinion um private schools just don't have a place in our society anymore um the idea that a select few can be put ahead because of um the welfare born into um just doesn't sit well with me and to me isn't a principle of equality that is uh, that should still be existing in like a in, in today's society it's it, but it's 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 what private school offers people um you can't you know the levels of education yes uh, probably you know people don't go there for the the better gcse rates they go there for the positions that they can be put into later in life you know you look at statistics from um the 2018 uh, social mobility commission um report and 49 percent of journalists uh are from private school backgrounds and uh in our current cabinet there's 31 percent of uh, cabinet ministers are from a private school background it's the the networking and the positions of power that you can get into are one of the biggest attractions and the fact that so many people in high positions of society come from such a select background that where they've been taught the same things they've been given the same frame of mind um and to have so many of them in that in that position, whilst there are so many others who haven't had that experience, but have equal things to input into the system, uh, are put to the sidelines, it doesn't doesn't really make sense. Um, I think that if we look to some of the Nordic countries, such as I think it's Finland, um, they actually banned making like someone pay for education. They they banned like being able to pay for an education. Um, which then led to like middle class and upper class parents having to vote in the interests of their children's education. So that would be for the parties that would actually put money into the education system, therefore like leveling up all of public education, which, you know, just works, doesn't it? You know, it just, it just makes sense, frankly, but yeah, no private schools, they just, they don't have a, they don't, in my opinion, they don't have, a role to play anymore in today's society and I think it'd be better off without them. Uh, I'm not quite sure how you'd get rid of them uh, because they do play such a pervasive role especially in British society. Um, you know you can ask someone and they'd know some of the the top private schools that are ingrained in British society so you know uh, I probably won't name a few actually because don't want to be too uh, exclusive. Um, but yeah i just and people use the argument of well um you people can get scholarships and people can get bursaries to go to um private schools but in a in a book by uh, robert verkike called uh, posh boys how the english public school system ruined britain um he did a bit of research that found uh, most bursaries were applicable to parents uh, to families whose household income was up to £120,000. And it's like, well, I'm not going to lie, but they don't need the bursaries. Like, if they're saying they're struggling for money at 120 grand household income, then frankly, they just shouldn't send their kids to private school and maybe go on an extra ski holiday in the year, you know? Yeah, that's shocking. I haven't heard that statistic before, but it 
makes you think, you know, they need like money management courses rather than bursaries if you're on that much money. It's shocking. Yeah, it's a bit weird. <laughs> Leading on from the kind of recent way that private schools have been depicted in the media, if we think about recent articles about how there was like a competition at Durham for freshers to sleep with the poorest student. I think there's definitely some really negative, harmful aspects of attending a private school and having quite a narrow-minded education. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. Uh, no, completely. Um, and I mean, I can only speak from the experience that I, I, I've interacted with students from private schools and what I've read in the media. And as we know, the media is never always the, the best place to take information from. Um, and I think it's also important to say, you know, we have nothing against people that went to private schools, but everything against the system of private education and the privilege that it affords to someone. Um, what, what we've seen recently in Durham, I do think, um, well, it's classism, one for all, you know, um, but that feeds into cultures that are created at private school, as you were saying. So it's this almost, um, and this is probably a select few, um it's just the thing that the select few decide or not decide sorry are able to get into such high profile positions so um with things we've seen such as uh boris johnson michael gove uh, david cameron they're all members of uh, the bullingdon club at oxford and they're all um former private school students two from eton and i'm not quite sure where michael gove went um and the bullingdon club was known for its chauvinistic outrageous like acts of vandalism and harassment in its local community but they were never uh charged with it or they never faced any consequences as a result of it so it's this self-inflated overconfidence that the system uh like embeds in a culture within private schools and that's probably the most harmful, one of the most harmful things that comes out of it, out of a private school system. Um, they, they, they like, they build on principles that are archaic and outdated and not really for today's society. And I can imagine that a lot of them are trying to change. So um, there was a recent TikTok trend uh, that was going with like a certain TikTok sound that was like private school check or something. And it was all these... Uh, displays of wealth and whatever else and um one school themselves actually like uh put out a whole media statement that was like we've found that some of our students are doing this and like we don't agree with it like it's not the nature of the culture of the school um we do a lot to try and like break down social barriers well they say they do i don't know uh, they do a lot to try and break down social barriers so it's it's probably not all to lay blame at the school but a wider sense of elitism and classism that is imbued within a person that attends a school um the things in durham well that's just elitism playing into toxic masculinity and you know a sense of chauvinism and misogyny because well, it, well on both sides someone may uh, they might be trying to sleep with the poorest male fresher as well if they're a boy um you know it can go either way um but yeah i it's just really bad <laughs> yeah I mean, that's so interesting about the statement um regarding the tiktoks because i've seen a few of those 
And I just, as I was watching them, I thought, God, like, well, firstly, you know, if I did like state school check and like went round and showed like the asbestos in like the outdoor classrooms, you know, like the Holiday Inn where people would like stand with cameras and take photos of us playing PE, like, you know, it would be quite shocking to kind of, what's it called on TikTok where you like duet, duet them. One yeah, of them. Yeah. Um, but I guess it's good that the school is sort of at least taking responsibility but then it can't help but feel quite tokenistic, you know, because that same school will historically have just played into creating this elitist selection of students who, you know, it, you can't, well, not that you can't blame the students because we can kind of choose how we interpret things that happen to us. But I can see that if you're put into one of those schools where they say, you know, we're one of the top elite schools in the country, you will naturally kind of internalize that. And I yeah. think that sort of level of confidence is definitely something I find intriguing because like I want to be a barrister in you know a law career. And I think that a lot of public school students just naturally have better public speaking skills and better confidence levels because they haven't had to fight to have their voice heard in like a classroom of 35 pupils and they haven't sort of felt that they are in the kind of worst half of the education system. I think, yeah, no, what you're saying there is completely right. And it also plays into the fact that a lot of them haven't faced like great difficulty in achieving things or getting to places. Some of them will have, and some of them will have faced some really bad things. But I recently watched... Um, industry it's a new uh drama series on bbc um and there was a scene where one of them who said he went to eton and he wanted to move uh teams in this new grad scheme that he was just been a part of and he's speaking to the boss about it um and she just said don't you ever talk to me like that again like who do you think you are this is not your position to do it and for the rest of that episode it showed him as being quite like withdrawn and down about it as though he hadn't he, he hadn't faced that before. He hadn't been told, no, like, you can't have this because I know it's a dramatisation, but I think it's probably quite realistic. Um, yeah, they, they haven't... Uh, it doesn't give them a, a resilience, in a way, to uh, things that might have affected your education. Like, I don't know, I had five English teachers in year 11, um, and we were tops at English. Uh, <laughs> you wouldn't get that in many other places. <laughs> Literally, yeah. No, it's so interesting because I think the level of spoon feeding that goes on in private schools does mean it has been shown, I was reading a study earlier today, that if you went to a state school, you are more likely to achieve a first or a two-one at university because you're more likely to have those kind of personal reserves and the ability to do your own work. Because it is quite hard to be told to go and do, you know, like 10 hours of reading for a unit just off your own back, no lectures, no guidance. But then I think back to like my A-levels and some of the teaching provisions were quite shocking. It wasn't the school's fault necessarily, but they didn't have the funding to give us adequate resources. And so I had to learn from quite an early age to be able to motivate myself and do my own learning, which is a skill that I think you're less likely to get if you go to a private school where teachers are 
trying to help their students as much as they can to make the money sort of worth it. Completely. And to add on to that, um, University of Bristol specific um, offer contextual offers. So I came here on a contextual offer, which is two grades lower. Um, And they've done research themselves that shows students who come here on contextual offers uh, do better as a cohort than um, more well-off privileged students. Like they broke it down to grant into demographics. I'm not quite sure on the specific ones, but yeah, it's shown that those who come here on contextual offers do better in general um, than some of their peers who might have come on higher grades. But um, I like that statistic because I came here with um, one of their access schemes. But then I was thinking recently, and I don't know sort of like, because obviously access schemes are a really positive thing. But when I was really privileged because I did grow up in a household where education was really valued and where you know I was told there's this access scheme you know you should look at applying to xyz Russell Group universities and that isn't necessarily you know I did do well at my A-levels but I don't think I'm naturally more clever than somebody who wouldn't have had the same push towards higher education and I think just recently I've been thinking more about how maybe whilst access schemes are really good, perhaps they don't go far enough because by the time you're an age to apply for an access scheme, you will have already kind of decided your path in a sense. And once you've, you know, even from the point of GCSEs, you've got to have good GCSEs to get into like a good sixth form or just to enhance your personal statement. And if you've been, you know, grown up in an environment where education isn't valued as much, and right from your primary school, maybe you haven't had that kind of push to sort of challenge yourself academically, then it's whether those access schemes will ever really manage to kind of capture that group that will have huge potential, but won't necessarily have it realised. Yeah, um, I think the issue there is um, that the education system as a whole needs a complete review and overhaul. Um, for people being like left behind because they're still very academically capable, but maybe haven't had that push, um, whether that be from uh, people in their personal lives or uh, school staff, um, the education system needs to be able to ensure that everyone has an opportunity to do what they want in life. So whether that be academic or vocational, um, it needs to be able so that people can move in between the two really up until you know the age where they actually have to set out what they want to do um and i think that goes all the way from you know year one and reception all the way to uh year 13 in your final years of your a levels or btex or whatever uh, qualification that you decide to do um specifically with access schemes uh i think at the moment there's only so much that they can do because without the uh the support in place from schools you you can't really force it upon people to to find out about these things um i only really found out about the one that i went on because i saw a youtuber do it and like i think that's quite a weird way around of uh, going about it um like my my college didn't really know much about them or at least they didn't 
advertise them that much. When I went and spoke to them about it, they'd be like, oh yeah, I've heard about that before. Um, but Bristol does access schemes very well, um, which is good. <laughs> I do, do like that about them. And yeah, I'm not... Ah, I don't know. I don't know if starting younger is any is any better because you know you don't want to force people to do things that, but but you want to make sure that the uh, the ideas at least planted in their head, I guess. Um, so for me, I was the first person in my family to go to uni, but I think there always was a bit of a not an expectation, but like a, a thought in my head, like oh, you should definitely go to university. Um, I don't really know. I don't know what that was like for you. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, like, because I'm from Bath, which is obviously geographically very close to Bristol. So our school, being a state school, had some quite strong ties with Bristol and their access scheme, which was really nice because they did want to get people locally from state schools into Bristol. But then I didn't like ever consider access schemes for other universities. And I think it was only because it was kind of not pushed down my throat, but it was constantly, oh, you know, have you applied to access to Bristol? Have you been to all the meetings and stuff? Because it was so local that I was aware of it. And I think, yeah, I just think, I guess maybe awareness raising is a huge part of it because it's quite easy to kind of internalize the idea that you are the type of person that goes to university or you're not. Whereas that's something that is in reality a lot more malleable. And I think, I think it's just interesting that it should maybe be kind of made, you know, I think state schools, if they had, I guess, more funding and everything, then they would be able to kind of offer university as a genuine option to more students because it did feel at my school that some groups, if you were in, you know, like the lower sets, you were just kind of destined to do a BTEC or go to college when actually maybe they just hadn't had the chance to realize their academic potential if that was what they wanted to do. Because obviously, you know, I think a vocational pathway can be really valuable for some people, but it's more the idea that some people don't necessarily get the opportunity to even consider an alternative perhaps. I completely agree with that. Yeah. Um, I look at my secondary school cohort of 170 people um, mm. and I can only count my hands like 10, 12 people who I know are at uni. And that's not to say that everyone should go to uni, mm. but the national average at the moment should be 50%. Uh, it, it, that's the aim. They've hit 50% of young people going to uni each year, which 10 out of 174 is it's not even 10%. Um, so it just shows that there's a there's a bit of an imbalance and it's probably a regional thing and, mm. and very much down to the opportunities in different areas um, and what's expected of people within different areas um, to do after post-16 education or post-18 education. Um, so there was a big push um, in my local area for um, for apprenticeship schemes. Um, but the issue with apprenticeships is, is that not all of them are that good. Uh, you have ones that are necessary in terms of like uh, trade apprenticeships, 
because you know there's a deficit of uh, trade skills at the moment and people taking up trade skills. Um, but there were people going to apprenticeships like uh, data management, which they literally said to me was just sitting on an Excel spreadsheet for five days a week, which wasn't useful. They got a qualification, but they said, what am I going to do now? Really? Like, I can't really do anything with it. So they actually went and resat one of their A-levels to get into uni. Um, it's it's issues with that are pervasive within the entire education system and it needs to be properly funded it needs to properly pay teachers and so that they have the best resources and i just think the way it is at the moment access schemes are helping as much as they can but they just do need to be pushed out a lot more and possibly and i think it's part on the universities as well they need to look at it and say well if this person's done a btech why can't they come onto my university course? So one of the great things that Bristol does is they have um, a lot of foundation to like health sciences, um, like foundation years. So um, they have one for medicine and one for vet science, which if you have taken the less like, well, less academic, but like less, um, you've taken a more vocational qualification, like you can still come and do vet science or medicine and i think that's good just for opening it up a bit because someone doing maths chemistry biology there's no difference to them than someone who's maybe gone and done a three a two-year level three course in animal management like they can still learn about alkanes and alkenes if needed be but i don't really know what vets do frankly <laughs> yeah i think um the whole sort of foundation year system is has a lot of potential for maybe drawing in people that might be even sort of excluded by an access scheme because I know for law it was the traditional offer would be A star AA and my offer was AAB which is still quite a high requirement you know if you're at a school that just does not have enough funding to offer enough resources then that is really challenging to achieve off your own back and I think I'm not 100% sure what the grade requirements are like for foundation courses, but they seem to make a bigger provision for people with uh, like not the same base level of knowledge out of A-levels to join courses. It would be nice if they had one for law, to be honest. The people that get into legal careers definitely needs a bit of diversification. A bit, sh bit of shaking up, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, and sort of leading on from that, especially with the regional aspect, I thought it'd be interesting if we talked a bit about within the state school system, the grammar comprehensive divide, because I read um, some really interesting statistics that in 2018, there were 16 grammar schools that were given 50 million pounds of funding to create 4,000 extra places for pupils but almost half of these grammar schools were in the home counties, which is one of the most sort of affluent areas of Britain already. And only one school was in the north of England, which just makes you question how, you know, people that support the grammar school system can think that they genuinely get the brightest from across the UK, if they're all just concentrated in Surrey and Hampshire, you know? I don't yeah. know what your thoughts are. 
So um, probably to no surprise from what I've said so far, uh, I don't agree with grammar schools either. Um, as you said, it's a concentration of uh, like areas and especially where areas uh, are possibly more affluent. So um, my local grammar, um, I tried for the 11 plus, failed it, thought the world had ended, but no, I'm perfectly fine. Um, the, the issue with them is, is that um, when they were created in, well, I don't know, the early 1900s, um, they were there to provide a classical in, you know, what you call it, like abbreviated commas or whatever, um, a classical education for working class students who then to go on to university um, as a tool of social mobility. But nowadays they're kind of been hijacked. Oh, I don't like that word. Maybe not hijacked. Um, they've kind of just been, they're just being used by the, by the middle classes to be able to get their, their, get their child into a good school where they'll get uh, a good education to then go on to, uh, to uni. But these are parents who could probably have afforded to send their child to private school, but are taking the place of possibly a working class student who has little to no like financial prospects of going to a private school. Um, so they, they, they don't work as a tool of social mobility, basically. But instead, they separate children at the age of 11 into thinking some people are smart and some people are stupid, which one is a terrible thing to do at the age of 11. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, they don't work in a way that many children who don't make it into grammar schools will actually go on to perform better than their counterparts who did make it into the grammar school. Um, I've had many friends who went to them and just say that they weren't a healthy place for them. Mm. that there was a big impact on uh, their mental health and stress levels because there was a, always an association that if you went to the grammar school, you had to do the best. Um, but also it concentrates at the age of 11, more able students, again, in quite tentatively put, more able. Um, this creates education deficits uh, within local areas because you'll have students at the age of 11 who have performed better at the age of 11 um, and therefore on average that that grammar school will probably carry higher grades throughout its um like the five years of that student going from year seven to 11 but they hold grammars and regular comprehensive to the same standards in in the same league tables but how can you expect a comprehensive school to do as well when there's a higher proportion of again, more tentatively put, more able students within one single school. Um, if you're going to have these two separate forms of uh, school, then they have to be judged separately as well, which uh, currently they're not. Um, and there's also a 2018 UCL study um, that kind of goes against the argument I'm making, but still proves why they're not useful anymore. Um, is that the, the UCL study came out with the fact that uh, grammar schools don't really give you any much better of a life prospect at the moment. So, but they definitely took it as more of an angle of like, they, so they just shouldn't exist and save the turmoil of like separating children at the age of 11 and creating uh, quite a socioeconomic divide because it is students whose parents can afford to get them tutored to go into the school. Um, 
compete against student, students whose parents can't afford that? Yeah, I think that's a big issue, especially this kind of private tutoring aspect to it. Because um, I know one of my flatmates, her cousin is currently like practicing for the 11 plus. And sometimes we like look at the questions that um, the cousin's doing and they're literally insane. You know, I'm doing law at like a top university. My flatmates are all doing, you know, chemistry, history, really good subjects. And we are just mind blown. Like, I don't know, it, I am so glad that I didn't have to go through that because I think it must have quite a, you know, damaging effect on your self-esteem to be told you can't answer these nonsensical questions at the age of 11 therefore you know you're going to go to a school that everybody deems less academic and it's just so shocking because you know things like access to bristol have proven that there are lots of students that don't necessarily realize their full academic potential until they're at university or until you know a levels when they're a bit older than 11 so i completely agree i just think Grammar schools, private schools, get rid of them. Rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, were there any other, something that I did quite want to bring in was the impact of coronavirus, both in terms of um, the whole rent strike issues, which I'd like to get onto in a minute, but also just how I think it will probably have a huge impact on students from state schools that are trying to get to universities because if you look at the figures it's something like just three percent of state-funded primary schools and six percent of state-funded secondary schools have managed to provide online live lessons for students whereas it's 59 percent of private primary schools and 72 percent of private secondary schools and that's just such a massive gap between the two which is so unfair and you can completely understand why state-funded secondary schools are unable to provide this because they are just chronically, almost criminally underfunded by conservative governments. But I think for me, it was just really shocking to see how huge this gap in provision was and that nothing's really being said about it. It's not really being addressed by any politicians or MPs at the moment. Yeah, so um, I think the education divide, uh, as big as it already was, has like just been exacerbated as a result of uh, COVID-19. Um, and that's seen in things such as the uh, A-level results scandal with that ridiculous algorithm. Yeah. I think this year, um, so Bristol itself has come off with some better statistics this year, but I do think that's as a result of um, one, they dropped the algorithm and just went straight to like honouring the offers that were made originally. But two, because uh, they didn't have to sit exams. So they didn't have to, again, I don't really mean this, but they didn't have to like prove that they'd learned something and be able to go through the exam. So I think in a few years time, we're going to see the effect that COVID-19 had on people's education. So like literacy rates dropping, numeracy rates dropping, especially in the younger years. Um, and when it comes to this year's um, year 13s, um, 
mm. in who are sit, who are going to sit their A levels. They've missed five months of uh, college uh, sixth form in uh, last year, and most of them might be taking two weeks off at a time, having to self isolate this year. Um, they're not going to be able to cover all the content, and this goes the same for all years that precede them. That people are missing out on vital parts of their um of their education and that's in effect going to affect their life chances um well life chances and life prospects um compared to some of their uh the peers who their peers who have had better a better level of education over the past three years well not better level but more consistent delivery of an ed- of, of an education um and most likely there's going to be all more well-off pupils that have been able to get you know, daily online classes um, to a high level. So, yeah, it's just going to make it worse. We're we're done for. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, it does seem like it's all sort of just going down the pan at the moment with regards to just, you know, sort of perpetuating that wealth divide because if your parents are able to buy you all the resources and all the online learning environments and everything, then, you know, that's really great. But there are so many families that will have been really badly hit by um, COVID-19 and will have suffered a lot under the way that things like universal credit have been reacting to coronavirus. So it's just a shame that, you know, it hasn't really been tackled in a more constructive way by the current government. Because I do, yeah, they could have done more to sort of lessen the impacts that are being felt by people on the lower end of the income spectrum. Well, it was like they were meant to give out like 40,000 like laptops to low income students. And I think a lot of schools haven't even seen those, you know, appear, which is a bit late now, but because they needed them back in. March and April when they still had four yeah. months left of school and it's just shocking and it shows an utter contempt for lower income communities who at the last general election put their trust on average within the, the hands of the Conservatives for one reason or another however whatever they might have voted for so um, at the next election it's definitely going to be interesting to see how that plays out uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I'm just a bit conscious of time because I couldn't quite figure out how to get an extended Zoom account. Um, but I just wondered if you wanted to say anything about the news that we had yesterday about the rent strikes because I was just completely disgusted by the University of Bristol's response. Yeah, uh, so by the university saying that they're going to take rent arrears from bursary students if they decided to take uh, part in the rent strike. So if they have an, an overstanding amount, they're going to take that out of their bursary. I just think it's such a bad thing for the university to, to even think of doing. They've already got a reputation of being quite a socioeconomically divided university because of their high pri- high proportion of private school students like people associate Bristol with being private school with being rich 
them doing this is them shooting themselves in the foot for all of the good work that they've done so far. And it's just such a bad way to go about it. It's such a bad move. It's taking away the right to effect. It's effectively taking away the right to protest for people who are on bursaries because they'll need that to live on more. Most of them, they don't have like someone they can just ring up and call and be like, yeah, uh, I'm not paying my rent strike. I'm not paying my rent because I'm part of this rent strike. Um, but it doesn't really affect me. So like mummy and daddy can I just have a bit of money, please. But like bursary students, one way or another, won't be able to do that. So they'll affect a lot of them. And I don't blame them. There's no shame in if bursary students have to make a decision between standing in solidarity or paying their rent. Because you, as bad as it is, you've got to think of yourself. And if they're going to take away things that make you financially secure you just i would say you have to give in there's no shame in it and no one should make you feel shame for that um it's just disgusting really like i don't know why the uni thought of doing it um i just you know i'm lost for words in a way because it's just such a bad move like why why would you do that you know it really does just seem shocking because it alienate students on bursaries and yeah it just it just seems absolutely nonsensical to kind of subject a group of people who probably just because of the nature of the general demographic of Bristol University probably already feel quite sort of excluded or you know at least sort of made to feel different due to their socioeconomic background and then to sort of single them out and alienate them even more is crazy it's yeah i don't know like, the university themselves have created a divide between students now based on financial background mm. and like it they, it's not it's not good like it's not it's not fair it's not right it's just yeah, I'm lost for words on it at times because it is just a, such a bad move mm. and like I can't now honestly say that I would tell because um, I, I do a lot of student ambassador work a lot of access work I can't li sit there and say that I would suggest this university to a student from a similar background as me if that's how the university is going to treat who, who are like should they come in why should they give Bristol the time of day so yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's a shame because it does make you think. First, you've got to tackle the issue of access schemes maybe not approaching students early enough, but then also the way that we can continue to support students who've come to places like Bristol once they've actually, you know, fought their whole time through, you know, against an education system that doesn't necessarily want to help them succeed and want to help them achieve in this way and I think you know that's where something like the 93% club can provide such a good support for students who finally got to this university and then they realize that it's not exactly this utopia of equality and learning and that it still maintains these ancient ideas about you know wealth and wealth inequality and on that note, is there any 
socials obviously it's quite hard to do at the moment but any ways that people can get involved with the 93 percent club if they want to so whether you're at bristol or any uni we currently have 28 branches of the 93 percent club across the uk after um starting with two this year bristol and durham we've expanded to 26 others so we're all over the place um in terms of upcoming socials we had one planned that was for an outdoors thing but we've been recently told by the su that we're not allowed to uh, after lockdown is lifted so we will be getting some virtual socials up and running um just follow us on instagram um and like our facebook page all our events go through both of those social medias um yeah just keep in touch like there's no need to, we have a free membership as well. So that's always good. And when we can, we'll be hosting our famous falafel social. Um, that is just really, that's been a really good social over the past few years. Um, and it's most likely free as well. So who doesn't love free appear? So. Great. Yeah. I just want to congratulate you as well, because that's such an impressive growth for the society to go from just two branches to so many now is incredible. And I think that's such a positive opportunity for state school students from you know, all across the UK to have access to this society. So thank you so much for coming on today. I don't know if there's anything, sorry, we kind of jumped about with the questions, if there's anything all else right. you wanted to say, but yeah, thank you. I thought you had some just really interesting, valuable points. Brilliant. Yeah. That's, that's brilliant. Thank you for having uh, me and us, you know, yeah, uh, really appreciate it. Once again, thank you so much to James Fishwick from the 93% Club Bristol for that really engaging discussion. I hope you all enjoyed listening. And if you have any thoughts yourself, then, as I said at the beginning, please feel free to drop me a message at Unseen Law on Instagram and Twitter. And also, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and I will see you again next week. Bye.